This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Esports is a good aberration. We're still moving forward. We're part of something much bigger than sport right now. The health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. All right, guys, lots going on in sports, and the Masters continues to resonate in various ways. I will say my favorite thing on sort of a light note was, I don't know if you guys saw this on Twitter, but the pictures of the champion at the Atlanta airport with the green jacket like slung over the uh, <laughs> over the chair uh, at Hartsfield. I love that so much. Um, but one of the really resonant images, uh, a series of images, one positive, one negative, Uh, in a way, was Lee Elder, certainly the positive. Let's hear what he had to say. To me, my heart is very soft this morning. Soft because of the wonderful things that I have encountered since, since arriving here on Monday and being able to see some of the great friends that I have made over the past years. First of all, let's just talk about Lee Elder for a minute. And and I will say, you know, Michael Barr, I was grateful to you because when we spoke with Billy Andrade last week ahead of the Masters and we talked with uh, Brett Pulley as well, our Atlanta Bureau Chief, about what was going on, you know, you referenced Lee Elder and, and how important he was to the game of golf. And, and it was a very poignant moment. Um, and then, of course, Lynchy someone's got to come along and ruin it. Gary Player was up there with him, one of the two people that Lee Elder referenced, Jack Nicklaus being the other, of course. And Gary Player's son, come on, man. I kind of noticed it when it was happening. Yeah. And, um, you know, you don't usually hold a sleeve of balls horizontally. You hold them vertically, and you take the ball out of the top, and you put the sleeve back in the the bag. But this, he admitted it, Wayne Player, uh, one of Gary's, sons said i thought it'd be cool to know what ball my dad was teeing off with and this has charged a firestorm obviously there's a family feud going on with the players uh, family his brother mark uh, is not a big fan of his brother wayne um there are reports that uh, unconfirmed that he has been booted off the grounds of augusta national permanently but uh, this is a brand of ball that his dad has uh, formed an alliance with uh, encore uh, they make a bunch of different balls called Vero. It's not a big uh, ball that people use. I did some research. The three most uh, notable people that use that ball are Ezekiel Elliott, Charles Schwab, and Josh Allen, the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. So nobody okay. on tour is using it. Uh, but, yeah, I thought it was a little disrespectful, especially in that particular moment uh, with Lee Elder standing there. It was an emotional moment uh, with the players from Payne College, a number of African-American uh, golf professionals in the background. It reminded me of the 99 All-Star game when John Henry Williams made his dad wear a hat that said hitter.net and a shirt, hitter.net, when they took him out in a golf cart and he met the greatest living players in the history of Major League Baseball. Yeah, and of course the the the, the bogus moment, as it were, was you know Wayne holding this mm. holding this sleeve of golf balls horizontally and and 
clearly edging them uh, into into the shot, you know, into yeah. the live shot, and, and then a lot of the still photos. So um, not in good taste. And listen, we know uh, all of us, and, and certainly from talking to our friends on the PGA, the Masters, Augusta National, they do not mess around. And uh, that is... That is not cool. Manning calling signals, takes the snap, looks left, lobs it left, first is wide open, touchdown Giants! In the left corner of the end zone, with 35 seconds to go, and the Giants regain the lead! Manning to Burris! Manning to Burris. Manning to Burris. Uh, That was historic in many ways, and the reason we're, like, rubbing it in a little bit, sorry, Lynchy, is because... Had you been able to bet, and you were betting uh, on the New York football giants at that point, they were a 12-point underdog. Well, guess what you might be able to do for a future Giants-Patriots Super Bowl, which (laughs) seems a little bit laughable uh, at this moment in time in 2021. But you're going to be able to bet in New York, Michael Barr. Are you just, I mean, is that sound I hear you rubbing your hands together? Uh, yes, that's exactly what it is. In fact, I need to get some lotion because I have chapped my hands because I am excited about this. And I'm, I know people are saying, hey, you know, it's not, gambling's not my thing, and that's cool. But it's my thing. And, <laughs> and I, it's going to be a, a, a good moneymaker for New York State. Now, they're still trying to iron this out because they, the state wants to kind of run it like the lottery. Yeah. And, and the casinos are like, well, wait a minute. We, we got to figure something out. So they got to work on those things. But, yeah, once New York State gets there, it's going to be probably the biggest market for gambling in the nation. Barr will never go home. He'll just, he'll just stay. <laughs> he'll never but, leave the state of New York. But poor Mrs. Barr is like, wow, you're really working late a Yeah, lot. baby, I'm, I'm working I'm hard little, here. A it's little like, bit <laughs> suspicious of what you're doing. It's like, oh, it's just betting. Don't worry. It's just betting. Yeah, I, and that it is notable that they're taking a little bit of a different approach because, you know, folks are skeptical about – you know, betting in in some ways and sort of the ripple effects across society and people getting themselves in trouble. Not everyone is as responsible as you, um, Michael Barr. So it'll be interesting to see if this does become a little bit more of the model, as you say, based more on the lottery system uh, and not as reliant on on the traditional casinos. So we'll see. We'll see, Lynchy. Mm Mm-hmm. With the 25th selection in the first round of the 2009 first-year player draft, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim select Michael Trout. Well, that was a historic moment in baseball. Feels like we're having a lot of historic moments of late. So let's get into all of that with a guy who knows it all. We're talking about Tony Regans. He is Major League Baseball's Chief Baseball Development Officer. Tony, really nice to have you with us. Great to be with you guys. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So let's start with that clip. You were the GM uh, that made that call for Michael Trout, as he was called uh, in the draft so formally. Uh, take us back there. Take us back to you know that job in baseball as we get into this broader conversation of the state of baseball. It was a, an awesome time for us as an organization. Um, you know, that particular moment, you know, the drafting of Mike Trout, you know, really started the year before when uh, when we traded for Mark Teixeira and 
Teixeira ended up not re-signing with, with the Angels, which really gave us an opportunity to be in the position to take Mike um, in the 2009 draft. And, and if you look at that clip, uh, you know, Trout is actually the only player in the room at the, at the draft in New York in uh, Secaucus at the MLB Network uh, studios. And um, I think he was nervous uh, because uh, he thought he probably would go sooner than he, he did. But, uh, you know, we were fortunate that a lot of teams passed up on him, and we had the 24th and 25th selection that year. You know, he was our guy, our scouting staff, our, our development people did a great job in, in you know, recognizing the talent, um, and, and we made the call. A uh, uh, kid from the Northeast, uh, New Jersey, and, uh, you know, arguably now is, 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 is the best player in the game. So, uh, you know, cool moment for myself and, and the Angels organization and Angels fans. Tony, sir, I don't know where to start. There's so many things that you have in your resume. Probably the one that jumps out is that in MLB history, you're one of just six African-American GMs. Can you expand on that and what that moment means for the game? Yeah, I mean, I it, it's a, an accomplishment that I, I didn't take lightly. Uh, I, I understood, you know, what it meant in terms of historical uh, perspective. Uh, I understood, I understood, and just having conversations with guys like Bob Watson, um, you know, what to expect in terms of, uh, interacting with other general managers in the league and, and negotiating with, with agents and, and, and player relationships. And, and the whole process was just, uh, something that I didn't take lightly. Um, I thought I was able to communicate well and, and, and establish good relationships around the game over the years. I'd been, at that time in the game for about 17 years. And so I had good relationships, but, you know, I didn't take it lightly and, and, and relied on a lot of people for information and, you know, and, and how I went about my business. And so I just, uh, you know, rolled up my sleeves and kept doing what I, what I always did. And, and that was, you know, try to work as hard as I could, you know, be informed, uh, create good information and make sound decisions. You know, a lot of those decisions worked out really well, and some of them didn't work out so well. But, uh, you know, we had fun while we were doing it. Uh, I think our club was successful. Um, and, uh, you know, we won 100 games for the first time in the history of the organization. And I think the only time uh, that the Angels have won 100 games in the season. So there was a lot of cool moments. Uh, but, uh, you know, being an African-American GM, you know, I think I'm the only one in the history of the game that started you know, as an intern and, and didn't play professionally, but ended up running the club. So a lot of cool moments for me and my family and, and uh, you know, something that I didn't take lightly. I just want to follow up on that. You start, you earn this job because you work your way up through the Angels organization starting as an intern. How many young African-American men or women who have dreams to be the next Tony Reagans have you encountered since you had that job and have you mentored and advised? You know, there's, you know, surprisingly, there are a number that that want to to go down this path, but don't don't really know how to do it. And um, you know, and that was that was me. Uh, you know, back you know as a as a senior out of college in Cal State Fullerton, didn't know how to go about you know even getting into an organization. It was just by by fluke that that I went down to the Angels um, Angel Stadium. And and did the internship or got the internship with the Angels? Uh, it was just a friend of mine that that heard about you know that internship program, 
And so really access is really important. Uh, and now at the league, we're doing, you know, things that are, are creating that access, you know, going to HBCUs and, and, and interacting with, with students at that level, um, uh, creating internship programs here at the league office and, and, and around the 30 clubs. So I think that access and that information about, you know, how you go about getting into, into the game is, is extremely important and something that we're doing a better job, you know, as opposed to how we were doing it, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And so fair to say, Tony, that, that the conversation has, has elevated and expanded, especially over, over the last year where, where it feels like even societally and certainly across sports and, and Major League Baseball in particular, we're talking about diversity of voices. You know, diversity, you know, just in the last, uh, you know, 12, 14 months, you know, there, you know, there's a heightened awareness, a heightened sense of, of diversity and what diversity equity, inclusion, you know, what that all means, you know, and here at the league, you know, it's something that we, you know, not shied away from. We've, we've been intentional in terms of creating programming, creating opportunities for, for African-Americans specifically to do, to, to be a part of our game. Uh, some of those things are, some of those jobs and those opportunities are, are behind the scenes and not out front, not on the diamond, not in the front office. But at the league level, um, and, and and some of those are are starting to to um, pay huge benefits to to organizations. Um, I, we see a lot of kids now starting to climb, um, like I did um, many years ago. And it takes it, it takes time, and something that we're patient with. But um, you know, we want we want to create as many diverse opportunities as we can, and it's something that we. Uh, we've been intentional about. Uh, commissioner has been very vocal, not only to um, you know the front office here at, at, at the league, but you know the thirty owners as well. So um, you know we're looking forward to you know a more diverse product. Uh, obviously, our product on the field is very diverse, uh, but uh, you know in, in front offices around the league, looking at a more diverse product. In honor of Jackie, Major League Baseball is taking the unprecedented step of retiring his uniform number, number 42, in perpetuity. Number 42, from this day forward, will never again be issued by a major league club. And that, of course, is former Commissioner Bud Selig talking about Jackie Robinson Day. It was this week, so how appropriate that we are talking to the Chief Baseball Development Officer, Tony Regan. So, Tony, talk to me, talk to us about Jackie Robinson Day. You know, we were talking earlier in the show about, you know, efforts around diversity. But when you think about the the two or three really most historic moments in the history of baseball, the signing of Jackie Robinson is up there for sure. Tell us what that means. You know, I would argue it's probably the most important yeah. moment in the history of the game, uh, you know, due to the impact that it had on not only the game of baseball, but the country. Um, and, you know, to get to know um, Jackie Robinson um, from the perspective that I that I know him in terms of, Miss Rachel Robinson and Sharon and and Preston Gomez, who who worked for me back with the Angels and was a coach when he was when Jackie was with the Dodgers, and to see Preston, you know, talk about 
uh, Jackie and the things that he went through and how he persevered and, 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 and just stayed focused, um, in, in the face of, you know, you know, death and, and just a tough, tough situation. Jackie persevered and, and he was, he was arguably probably the most impactful person in the history of our game. And, um, you know, I, I am really thankful, grateful for the opportunity to, to, that I have because, you know, none of that happens without Jackie. Every African American player that is, um, in our game, every African American executive, uh, around the league really owes, uh, you know, everything because without him, none of us have access to this sport. I think it's more than just baseball uh, and, and sure. as an African-American. I mean, it, it, it helped pave the way for me to do what I'm doing. And uh, and I have to be honest, by the way, every time I see the clip of Jackie Robinson stealing home on Yogi Berra, I, I just laugh my hiney off because it's like that's one of the greatest <laughs> moments in baseball ever. And he pulled it off. Uh, and so I, I guess to expand on what I'm saying is – in, in in honor what uh, MLB has done, they've expanded its partnership with the Jackie Robinson Foundation, and they will include uh, a better investment uh, for the uh, scholarship program. Can you expand more on that? I mean, it's it's a relationship that we've had over the years, and, and we continue to strengthen. You know, we we believe that the work that the foundation has done over the years in terms of um, the scholarship program, uh, the access that that the program and the foundation has had in, in, in major league baseball in terms of, you know, young folks that have graduated from the program have gone on and worked for major league clubs. And, um, so it's, it's an organization that Miss Rachel Robinson has shepherded and, and led and has, has done a remarkable job and Sharon as well. Of, they've done a great job in, and carrying on the legacy of Jackie. So, um, it's a partnership that Major League Baseball cherishes and, and, and honors, uh, honors and respects, and it's it's something that we you know we are, are going to continue to 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 foster and, and develop over for many years to come. Tony, um, last week a number of players said they are donating a portion or a full one game salary to the Players Alliance. Uh, David Price, that would be close to two hundred thousand. Um, Jason Hayward would be about one hundred thirty thousand. Jackie Bradley Jr. that would mean about a forty thousand dollar donation to the Players Alliance. We had Curtis Granderson on the show last summer when nobody knew what was going to be happening when baseball was being rescheduled, how many games they were going to play, would COVID shut it down, and it looked like the Players Alliance might have a shelf life of a couple of months when they went around around the country distributing equipment and and trying to encourage young people to play. Has a move like this really bolstered the Players Alliance, and they're going to have legs and be around for a long time? I believe they they are. Um, Curtis has really been um, out front, um, and and, and his business savvy is is really important. Uh, His organizational skills are really really important. So he's done a a great job. Uh, CeCe has, you know, coming off the field, he's jumped right in. Wants to be involved and engaged. I think Edwin, Edwin uh, Jackson, I think is involved. Um, Cameron Maiden. A lot of these guys that are really passionate about the work 
and I'm passionate about the games, especially the game in the black community, are really important. And so I think that the Players Alliance will be around for many years to come. I think they have the support of the league, Major League Baseball, and the Major League Baseball Players Association. So that's important. There will be uh, uh, moments where you see the Players Alliance uh, getting involved and engaged in and and growing our sport, which is really important. So, uh, you know, I'm excited to to work alongside and partner with them on various initiatives uh, from the league standpoint. And, um, you know, we're excited about being able to just to, to help grow the game together alongside the players. So, Tony, you know, we talk a lot on this show about access to sports because it's an economic question in many ways. We were talking uh, just recently with a pro golfer about it with the game of golf. I grew up playing baseball. I think my co-host here did too. I'm guessing you did as well. Um, and even then, access it felt like it was a little bit easier. But in the world of, of travel ball and everything that's going on in the world, it does feel like that income gap, that wealth gap manifests itself in youth sports. What does baseball do about that? I think you're right in terms of um, you know access and economics. I think those two things do do connect and uh, intersect. Um, you know, I think travel ball and travel sports, not just baseball, uh, but travel sports in general, um, is is a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it's a blessing in that there are a ton of kids around the country um, that are engaged in the travel component of our sport, not just baseball, softball, but, uh, you know, all sports. So that travel piece exists, and um, the cost associated with it can be a detriment for a lot of, you know, families, uh, especially those that are underserved and don't have the economic means to, you know, to play our sport. Um, and so, what we've tried to do is create programs that uh, that take and eliminate the economic piece. Uh, a lot of cost-free uh, programming that exists um, from the commissioner's office that we put into to into practice over the last really five, uh, five years that, uh, kids don't have to, to come up with the, you know, the, the dollars that it, that it takes to, to participate. So if, you know, one of the things that is extremely important is that we eliminate that, that cost barrier. So we're trying, we're trying and we're working on, on that piece of it because, you know, economics is important. Um, not everyone has, the kind of uh, financial means that, you know, those that uh, are able to, to, um, that those that have, uh, not everyone has that. And if you look at, you know, countries like the Dominican or Mexico, uh, those kids participate um, and they don't have the, the, the premier equipment, but they're out there playing. So we're just trying to get, you know, bats and balls in hands, um, creating safe environments in terms of fields to, to, to play our sport and really, you know, create that access that, uh, that young people want. Just coming out outside of the pandemic, it'll be really important to, to make sure that kids have an opportunity to just get outside and play and not necessarily in a, in a formal way, but just get out and throw, throw a baseball around or play catch or play home run derby. Those things are going to be important, um, you know, as we get on the other side of this pandemic. I was just going to go on into that because sentences I don't hear the way I used to hear when I was a kid we would just simply say, all right, let's get up a game or two's upsides. And there we are. We go off to the field and, and we're off. And 
I don't hear that as much anymore. I, I don't know if it's because we're in a society now where we're loaded with cell phones and and video games. That, what is the answer to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mike, I think you make a, a great point. And, and, you know, society has changed since, you know, we were we were coming up in terms of, you know, our parents would, you know, let us you know, go out down the street, play in the park, and, uh, you know, be, be home before the lights, you know, the street lights turned on. And now, you know, with, with, you know, various safety concerns, parents, you know, don't let their kids just, you know, run down the street and, and go to the park and, and play by themselves. And, and so, you know, the really important part is that we can create safe environments for, for kids to play. And I think that that's, you know, some of the things that we've done not only with our partnership with uh, with uh, the Boys and Girls Club, but the Cal Ripken Senior Foundation, um, the Players Alliance, uh, you know, all of these organizations understand that, you know, safety first and foremost is important, and then creating access, you know, to our game is, is the second piece. So, um, you know, we, we're hopeful that we can get to a place where that, you know, the game is always – conducted in a safe environment, you know, first and foremost, that's, that's, that's the primary uh, piece of this. And then uh, from that, you know, create as many opportunities to play a game as we can. Tony, uh, roughly 8% of the, of the rosters on opening day uh, constituted black or African-American ballplayers. How do you attract the young black ballplayer today keep him interested or her interested in softball up through the formative years and the developmental years through junior high high school and eventually maybe into a college you know what's really really cool is that uh, you know a lot of times i hear well african americans aren't playing baseball or are not playing softball and you know i've been fortunate to travel the country you know over the last you know six years and and see, you know, programs that are in place where, you know, whether it's our academies or, or the RBI program or just individual, you know, former players or, or, you know, coaches, high school coaches, youth, youth coaches and mentors, uh, starting their own programs. And so, you know, I look at like the work like a Marquise Grissom has done down in, in Atlanta where, you know, he's taken a program that was really, that didn't exist. To something that's really, really robust, where you know he's getting kids that are seven, eight, nine years old, and um, you know, training them, uh, growing them, educating them, teaching them about the game, and and not just the game, but about life. And then these kids are going on to you know play at the high school level, to play at the college level, and you know a lot of the kids out of that program are are, are experiencing pro ball as well. So. Um, and those type of programs exist all around the country. It, there's just pockets, and it's not as as uh, connected as we would like. Uh, there's a, there is a lot of fragmentation, but there are a lot of African Americans playing, and you'll start to see as we you know get in the next few years um, a consistent wave of African American talent being drafted at the highest levels. Um, of our sport. And if you can just look at the last five years, I think about 17% of the kids going in the first round are African-American. And I think that trend is going to not only continue, but I think it's going to grow as we move forward. Well, Tony, you know, 
given everything that's going on in the world and in the country that there are a couple things we wanted to make sure we talked to you about. And, you know, you mentioned Marquise Grissom down in Atlanta. I'm an Atlanta guy and I've been following everything uh, very closely that that's going on down there. I know it was a, a big decision made by a lot of different people and ultimately the commissioner, but talk to us about the importance of the all-star game not being uh, in Atlanta owing to what's going on down there as it relates to these new election laws. Sure. Um, you know, the, the commissioner made a statement, um, you know, you know, we stand by that statement um, as it relates to the league and the league league's position. But what I would really, uh, you know, commend the commissioner on is the process that he went through and, and me being kind of in the room and, and, and getting some of the feedback that, uh, and providing some of the feedback to, to the commissioner as well. But the, the process that he went through, um, the conversations that he had, the he didn't make the decision in a vacuum. He um, was very thoughtful, and methodical about about the way he he went about the decision making process. The people he talked to, so he got a wide range of opinions, whether it be from you know former major league players, uh, the major league players association, um, a lot of uh, you know employees. He, his process was very, very methodical and informed, and I think he made the best decision uh, for our sport. And, uh, you know, we stand by him. You were in that room. How much do you believe of an impact you had in the helping the commissioner make this decision? I just believe that, you know, we, we all voiced our, our opinions, uh, and, and he, again, got a lot of different opinions from a lot of different people. And I think any time... You know, I go back to my GM days. Anytime you're going to make a, you know a decision that is impactful, to, to have as much information at your your fingertips as you can is is extremely important. And I think he collected a lot of thoughts, got a lot of information, and then you know made you know the best call that he could make. Tony, the CBA expires at the end of this season. Um, historically, uh, relations have always been contentious between the Players Association and ownership and coming to a new uh, CBA. Um, do you see that changing at all this time around? You know, when it, when it comes to CBAs, and, and, you know, this is obviously, you know, not new, not a new process. You know, you have two sides. You have labor and then you have the business. Um, and so, you know, you know, our hope is that, both sides could come to an agreement and our game continues uh, and flourishes. And, and really that's, that's the extent that I would get into, you know, those type of negotiations, because I think that those are, are, are best left to the individuals in the room. A lot of, uh, you know, outside no noise is not uh, productive for anyone. So I would leave it at that. Um, I think that, you know, smart people will make smart decisions and, and our game will flourish because, uh, you know, the players and the league will come to a, a, a strong agreement. You know, Tony, as we wrap up, you know, one thing that strikes me is that, you know, this year, this past year, whether it be because of the pandemic and, and all the adjustments that various sports, including baseball, had to make, whether it is a reckoning around racial inequality and racial injustice uh, that we've also been discussing, the business has fundamentally changed in many ways. And I wonder, as you think about baseball holistically and and sort of putting on your various hats and, and thinking about your career as a GM and now with the league, 
What do you think changes going forward about the business of baseball? What are the things that maybe we've learned over the last year that will really stick in terms of continuing to grow this as a business? Uh, a couple of things that I think, you know, especially from, you know, my side of the business that, you know, we really had to look look into and look at deeply was uh, this virtual um, experience, this virtual presentation of our sport, uh, the virtual connection, we were able to really impact, you know, over the last 12, 13 months, impact more young people virtually than we had in, you know, in person. So that's something that we're going to really continue to to um, emphasize and work on, that, that virtual, we did virtual training, virtual presentations, uh, We've had virtual interactions in terms of conversations. Um, we've been able to really stay connected with our young people um, in a lot of different and unique ways that we weren't able to do or that we didn't do uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, most of that, those things took place in person. Um, for example, we have a, a program called the Dream Series, and we do that every week. Every year, um, Dr. Martin Luther King weekend in January, we do that every year. And we typically get about 100 kids in that program, uh, mostly African-American. This year we did that same program, and we had 600 kids participate in that program. So, you know, you're you're talking about six times the impact, six times the reach with really good programming. So those are some of the things that we're going to continue to try to, to, to enhance and do more of. And, um, you know, we're, we're excited about the learnings that we're going to implement coming out, you know, coming on the other side of this pandemic. There are some, a lot of bright spots uh, amongst all the tragedy that this pandemic has brought. We're really grateful for your time. We know as the season is, you know, starting to find its footing, it's a very busy time. Uh, Tony Regans, thanks so much. Major League Baseball's Chief Baseball Development Officer, former GM of the Angels. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed it. All right, guys. Thank you for having me, and um, you know, thanks for your interest in, in our sport. Appreciate it. So, guys, uh, really interesting to to catch up with him, and I think important this week. You know, Jackie Robinson Day. It feels a little uh, weightier this year, given everything that continues to go on in this country, given some decisions that have been made, most notably by Major League Baseball. And you know, one of the things that that really struck me, and I think it, certainly based on on your follow up, Michael Barr, it struck you was you know this was a guy who was in the room when Rob Manfred made the decision to pull out the pull the all-star game out of Atlanta. And, and that really resonated uh, in the broader world. There have been many stories now with more businesses joining the, the chorus of MLB and Coca-Cola and, and Delta and other companies saying, we do not like the voter restriction laws. And I'm just wondering how big is this going to grow uh, as we go along, and as I think about Jackie Robinson, uh, and I meant what I said, it's he was way more than just baseball. Yeah. It, it, he allowed me at least an avenue to do what I'm doing now, and it, you cannot forget what what he has done, not only for baseball but for society in general. What'd you make of it, Lynchy? What what jumped out at you? Um, I thought that you know we were talking about growing the game and attracting more. Uh, especially uh, young black men and women to play softball and baseball. 
And he said that last year they made more connections virtually yeah. over the last 12 or 13 months than they did with young people in person. And I think they may be on to something. Now, we all know that a lot of bad things have come out of COVID and some good things have come out of COVID. And if they can continue this connection and, and keep this connection and keep them in their grasping their interest in baseball, I think, I think they're on to something because they really need to grow as a business. And, and the best way to grow is obviously attract young people and have them stay and play. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. All right. It's time. <laughs> Here we go. All right, Here guys. Huddle around the RCA victor. It's time for the number of the week. Oh, boy. <laughs> Here's the question. Exponential, Exponential Fitness is the franchise owner of boutique fitness brands like Cycle Bar. They have revived plans for a U.S. initial public offering after setting them aside when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. This is according to people with knowledge of the matter. The company is based out of Irvine, California, and is planning the 2021 listing, which may value it at about what? All right. This is it. I'm going to be embarrassed because this is in my wheelhouse. Um, if I don't get this. I mean, I I seem to think, and this has been a very interesting question across the fitness world because there aren't a lot of comps out there, which the bankers don't like when they're trying to, to take something public. I'm going to go with a nice round uh, unicorn number, $1 billion. $1 billion. Huh. $1 billion. I'm going to go with... Um I'm going to go with $750 million. Wow. Well, Jason, you're up on stage. $1.3 billion. There we go. Wow, man. There we go. I, I thought Jason land. was going to pull the uh, gnome from Boston and then just a Vulcan <laughs> mind mill thing going. <laughs> Usually he pulls this off. But, uh, no, $1.3 billion. I should add, by the way, to uh, they uh, have uh, workout brands, Rumble, which yep. uh, involving Justin Bieber and Selena Gomez. So they are among the prior class attendees. So we'll see where this Yeah, goes. I mean, this is an interesting one, too, because they've been able to – I'm actually uh, – stay tuned next week because uh, I've got a special coming out that's all about the future of fitness. I don't deal with this particular uh, group of franchises, but we do talk about the, the future of boutique fitness. There's been a lot of distress in the market, and so they've been able the – Exponential and others have been able to kind of consolidate some brands. So uh, I think these platform moves are going to be more and more popular. So we'll see. We'll see how it all goes. Nice one. I love that number of the week. Bar, mm-hmm. you know, Good. made me look like marginally intelligent. So I like that. <laughs> all right. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week for you at the same time, plus online, wherever you get your podcast. Those drop on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly. Find me in the meantime on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch, and I want to meet the 24 people selected before Mike Trout in 2009. Yeah. <laughs> you can follow me at Lynchy WCVB. And I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. <laughs> 